18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its face with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great job, Abby. Is it, is it doing it now? Can you hear me? Well, good morning. My name's Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you. Uh, welcome to our family-style worship service that we do once or twice a month can't move. Family style worship service we do once or twice a month, so all the kiddos are, are welcome in our gatherings any Sunday, but in particular. Let's switch to the pulpit mic. Uh, it worked for Lou last week. What the heck? And uh, again, just thanks to Emmerich for driving down and blessing us. It's just a, a treat to have everybody in the congregation singing and, and have, your, have your skills uh, lead us in worship. Well, this morning... Uh, we're, we're continuing our, our process through our, our sermon series, through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, this class I took in seminary. It's my, my favorite class that I took in pretty much any, any schooling that I had. It was uh, by this guy named Dr. Allison, my favorite professors, and uh, this class was called The Theology of the Body, and it was like no other class I had ever taken in seminary, and it, it came about... It was, it was talking about the fact that we are humans in real flesh and blood bodies. What does this mean? And the reason Dr. Allison taught this class was because uh, years ago he had a seminary student. Um, and all seminary students are super spiritual, healthy people. Uh, no, that's not the case. This seminary student came to him and said, you know, Dr. Allison, I think I need you to pray for me. And I think I have some spiritual warfare going on because uh, I, I feel terrible. My health is failing. And uh, my grades are suffering, and my marriage is strained, and uh, I, I feel, my body feels awful. I think there's some spiritual warfare going on. And Dr. Allison asked him, well, uh, what's your diet like? And this student just, oh, you know, whatever. Whatever I have time for. Most of the time, fast food or, or whatever. And are you sleeping at night? Oh, I don't have time to sleep. I got too much going on. Are you getting any exercise or physical activity? Like, I'm a seminary student. I don't, I don't have time for that. And it was kind of, after a few questions, clear that it might not have been that exactly spiritual of an issue that this seminary student was struggling with uh, in, in the fact that he was kind of neglecting wholesale his body. And he was having all these implications, both in his uh, ability to live his life, but also in his relationships and his spiritual life with God, all those kinds of things. And so Dr. Allison, he said, uh, there seems to be a huge gap in Christian culture when it comes to acknowledging the reality and the theology the fact of our bodies, our, our physical bodies. 
The reason I go into that is because we're, we're looking at this passage, this, this chunk of teaching from Jesus, where we see the brilliance of Jesus' teaching to engage our bodies. The whole, the whole framework of the Sermon on the Mount we're seeing is human flourishing. These somewhat scary calls or commands from Jesus are really for our flourishing, to see us thrive as humans, to live in the way that God designed human life to work. And what's so brilliant in these six examples, these six commands that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, is that he gets at the heart and the soul, and he gets at the body as well. So Proverbs says, above all else, guard the heart, guard your heart, from from it stems everything you do. And then we see here in the Sermon on the Mount that what you do shapes your heart. The reason you live, or the way you live out in the world shapes what your heart loves and what your heart experiences. So Jesus gives us commands not so we can earn God's favor, because we already have that in the gospel by grace for those of us who are in Christ, but his commands actually enable us to live in his love, to live in the reality of this favor that we have in the gospel. God designs humans as whole, embodied creatures. We aren't souls racing around in a, in a race car body until we can escape it. But we, we see that the normal state of being human is embodied. There is a, a brief time in there in between the resurrection of our bodies where we're disembodied. But our normal state is as humans to be embodied souls. And this body and soul body-heart framework is key to understanding human flourishing as Jesus talks about it here. In our culture, we like to separate things into its constituent parts so we can just tweak one or the other. It's a mechanistic view. It very much stems from our, our modern philosophy, but we see that, that, that Jesus preached to the whole person. He calls us to experience life holistically as embodied souls. And this is my, that's my first point uh, this morning is that human flourishing is a holistic thing, and that Jesus' teaching here gets, gets to that. Look at this verse in uh, Matthew 5.48. It's the last verse of this chapter. Jesus says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which kind of makes me feel on first blush, we just turn the lights off and go home. Because, you know, how are we, we going to do that? But when you, when you understand perfection, and I think when you look at the original language in the Greek, a much better word there is wholeness. Therefore, be whole, as your heavenly Father is whole. God is whole. He's holy himself. He never does one thing while wanting to do something else. He's, he's always fully himself. And while we're not God, and while we're not perfect, sin fractures us. And so Jesus is calling us to bear his image as whole people. As a, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but this is how we're kind of framing it. Uh, we're using the metaphor of a heart burger to kind of understand this, this three-part wholeness teaching that Jesus gives us in this passage. This three-part pattern, he gives us six examples, and we see this heart burger idea play out in each one. Is it up there on the screen? Yeah, there it is. Doesn't look tasty. I picked, that pic- I picked that picture of the heart burger because it looks tasty, but it's also messy, like our hearts. So, d- d- double work there. 
Uh, and so we see in this three-part pattern that he uses in Matthew 5 here, where he starts with an action, then he gets to our heart, that's the burger, and then he follows with a second action. Action, heart, action. He starts with a rule, a law, and then he shows how that law is ultimately tied to a heart issue. And then he gives us a command, an action, that will help us deal with that heart issue. So, for example, the first heartburger we looked at was the anger slash murder heartburger. The initial law is don't commit murder. That's good. We should obey that. But the heart behind murder is being angry or indifferent with someone in your heart. Jesus says the same root issue behind murder is also the same root issue that we have in our hearts. When we are angry or we're indifferent, we just write people off, call them a fool. And that heart issue is a denial or unbelief of grace. Only if we really believe that we are sinners in in need of grace can we avoid sinful anger and indifference, let alone murder. Because people sin against us, when they sin against us, we know, well, I have also sinned against God and others. And so that sense of righteous anger and indignation is completely squelched by the truth of grace, that we are all standing in the need of grace. And we can acknowledge that we're, not, we're rarely, probably never, completely innocent. And then the, the last part of our heartburger is that he gives us something to do. He says, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled with your brother. If they have something against you, go and be reconciled. Which means if you've done something wrong, go and repent. Go and acknowledge your faults. And the reason he does that is because that is the best way to begin to experience the reality of grace. Does he actually say, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I messed up. That shapes our heart. That's the first heartburger. Then he gives us a heartburger for adultery and lust. Because it's not enough to simply avoid adultery and for the sake of time, I'm not going to rehash that. That's on our website and on our Facebook page. You can listen to the, uh, the adultery heartburger there. But I think this is a, a really profound thing that Jesus does, is that he, he sandwiches the heart between action. If we were to just try to embrace grace philosophically, intellectually, just cozy up with some books and understand grace, that's not going to shape our heart if our bodies aren't going and reconciling and obeying Jesus embracing grace. We're tackling two heartburgers today, two ways that Jesus is calling us to flourish, to be whole. Two areas are in our marriage and divorce, and in our words, integrity and our speech. Our posture towards marriage and divorce and our integrity and our speech. I'm tackling both of these heartburgers today because I believe the burger in each one of these is, is, is the same at its root. It's trust. I just want to get it out here. The, the heart issue that we're looking here in both divorce and with oaths and, and our integrity in our speech is our ability to really trust that God is present with us, that he's holding us, and that we can trust him, that, he, that, that we can submit to him. The heart issue that we're looking in both of these scenarios is do we really believe in our hearts that we can trust God, that he's here, that he's with us, and that he's in control for our good? Now, before we can talk about divorce, 
we first have to talk about marriage, which is way more fun to talk about than, than divorce, so I'm glad about that. And in order to talk about marriage, we have to talk about who invented marriage. Who invented marriage? Not a rhetorical question. God, yes. That's like 99% of all the answers in church. But I think in our culture, that answer might not be as obvious as it is maybe to us, or maybe just because we're in church, God is always the answer. There's lots of confusion about marriage in our culture. Because if it's just a, a human institution that we invented a while ago, to, or we evolved to, to raise offspring, or whatever the theories are, then for sure we can tweak it. We can pop the hood and fix it and make it how we want, or we could just do away with it altogether. But if God invented marriage, then we simply look at his design and say, okay. A gun was designed in a certain way, to be aimed and held and shot a certain way. You can try to do it on your own, but you'll probably end up shooting yourself. So how did God design marriage? Well, later in Matthew, in uh, chapter 19, we're going to be there for a minute, because Jesus gives us the same teaching that we see here in Matthew 5 about marriage and divorce. Only he expounds it a little bit more, and he shows us the, the, the heartburger. Jesus gives us some explanation here. Look in uh, Matthew 9, 19, verses 3 through 6. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we have the same two sides at work in this passage. We have the, the law extending back that the Pharisees followed, which was you've got to follow the law and, and offer an, a certificate of divorce in the, in the event that you want to divorce we see Jesus seeking to fulfill the law on the other. Pharisees are trying to trap him, and Jesus does what with the discussion? He takes it straight to the Bible, which is a great place to go in any discussion. He gets all the way back to the beginning where we see the original design for marriage. As God created the world, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have this beautiful poem. If you were to read Genesis 1 and 2 in Hebrews, in the, in the Hebrew language, it would just be this awesome Rhythmic, glorious poem of God's creative and beautiful work of creation. It's this flow where God says something, and then it comes into existence, and then he speaks a benediction over it, and it was good. He said something, and it exists, and it was good. And then as Abby read for us, like a record scratch, God looks at man alone, and he says, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so he makes a woman, a helpmate, the perfect complement to man. And in Genesis 2, we see Adam create the first ever love song, the first ever love poem. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And this poem is very telling. Because you'll notice, he doesn't go all Marvin Gaye, like, dang girl, you're fine. What, is he, what does he say? He says, you are me. 
The first ever love song is you are of my flesh. Flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bone. You are me. He doesn't see her as an object. He doesn't see her as a means to meet his needs. He sees, there as, he sees her as him. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's design for marriage. It's not good for man to be alone, and there's no longer two but one. This is a, a mystery, Paul says. If this seems crazy or confusing, uh, that's because the Bible says it is a mystery. It is a little bit confusing. The reason I go into all this, because so often in pastor life, when people want to pick fights about divorce, which apparently goes all the way back to Jesus, it's all, it's all about what am I allowed to do? What does the Bible let me get away with? But here we see Jesus change the question. What is God's design? Jesus changes the question. What is God's design? The Pharisees, the rule followers, are like, tell me what I'm allowed to do. What does the Bible let me get away with? Reminds me of youth group. How far is too far with my girlfriend? Draw the line. What is God's design? It changes our perspective. To not toe toe the line as close as we can, but instead to run towards God and his design and the good life he has for us in it. He says it right there in verse 6. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God's design is that marriage, every marriage, when two people get married, it is God who joins them. There's no longer two, but one. It is God who does it. And the Pharisees were confused. Look in verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So the Pharisees are, well, but the rules say, look at, let's look at the rules. Why, why are they here? If these, the, the Mosaic law says you can divorce your wife if you give this certificate of, of divorce. And Jesus answers in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Because of the heart. We're getting to the heart burger in our, in, in, our, in our picture here. The heart burger of the heart burger. Divorce is ultimately a heart issue. The first bun is the law to say, well, if you do get divorced, you do it in this way. But Jesus gets to the heart. A little context, like why does this certificate of divorce exist? It came into being, it was given to Moses by God because things were chaotic and terrible for women back in the Old Testament when it came about. The point of this law was not that divorce was acceptable or that it was allowed, but to try to control it a little bit. In this time, men had a very, very low view of women, almost less than human. The the words that Adam spoke over Eve had kind of been obliterated in that culture. And so instead of being you are me, it was you are mine. And so it kind of got to this place where they felt the right to divorce their wives pretty much at will, any reason would do. 
And this led to lots and lots of suffering for women and, and for children. And so this old law, this whole certificate of divorce stuff, was really not excuses, not giving an excuse for divorce, but it was limiting the, the reasons that could legitimately be, uh, be used for divorce. And it was putting protection in place for women. Very much concession, very much looking at the brokenness of people rejecting God's design and putting up some protection. But the Pharisees, still wanting to be in control, still wanting uh, to, to trust themselves and not God, they're like, oh, well, if I follow these little details about divorce, then I can swap out my wife for a new one. The key is to see divorce as God's concession to sin, to brokenness, to bring about a little bit of order. It's unnatural. It's miles from his design. Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not so. The key, Jesus says, is to see that it is God who joins people together in marriage. It's he who joins them. We, we often think we're making the choice, especially in our culture, where there's no arranged marriages or whatever. Unless you're in the AC, I guess. Sadie was telling us about that. It gets a little weird in, in, that, in that church. But uh, God is the one who, who joins. We think we're in control. We think we pick our spouse. And obviously, obviously to some degree, we do. But ultimately, it's God who joins. Marriage is God's world. We are just living in it. And this is where trust comes into play. If we know, acknowledge that God invented marriage, it's his world and we're just living in it, then this hardness of heart is referring to a hardness towards God and his design, a lack of trust, a resistance, a refusal to, to embrace his goodness and wisdom in marriage. Here's what Jesus is saying. Your spouse is your particular perfect gift from God. Period. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Even his or her imperfections, maybe especially his or her imperfections and shortcomings and limits, those are on purpose from the God of the universe to help make you more fully human, more like Jesus, more sanctified. He knew exactly who you needed. Exactly who would be best for growing you into wholeness. When he says, let not man separate, it's because God did it. And if God did it, then the point here is that we soften our hearts. And we trust him by receiving who he's given us. And the pain and the confusion and those moments where you're despairing, those moments where you feel like you made a huge mistake and your life is ruined. This is by no means trying to brush over the incredible pain and loneliness that can happen in marriage. But instead, it's an invitation to end those dark nights and those dark moments. To trust that, what, that God has joined you together and that he's good and that he's working to bring about your wholeness. The pain and suffering you are experiencing in your marriage, the loss, the limits, the staggering chasm between what you were hoping for and what your marriage turns out to be, it's not an accident. It's not senseless. It's not a mistake that you made. 
It's God who joins together. But when people get divorced, generally, they're saying, God doesn't know. He made a mistake. I, do, I don't trust his choice for me. Or he's, or he's not here. He's not present. He doesn't have anything to do with this. So I need to make my own choice and do what seems right to me. Flipping back to our sermon text, we, we see the end of our heartburger. Look in verses 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What we see here, and this is really kind of nuanced. This is like one of the strangest part of the six teachings Jesus has in this passage. The real issue is not necessarily divorce, but remarriage. Why? Because at the heart issue, the heart issue behind remarriage is not trusting God with your spouse. So divorcing him or her, trusting yourself to figure out what you need. When Jesus says, if you divorce your spouse for any other reason than sexual morality, then remarriage is adultery. Remarriage is a sin because your heart, your hard heart is refusing to trust God's providence for your life. Here's... It's one of the, the core truths of what Christians believe about marriage. You can take this to the bank. At the end of the day, marriage is more for our holiness than our happiness. There's happiness involved. It's not all weeping and gnashing of teeth. Marriage is ultimately for our holiness, our, our wholeness as people than it is for our happiness. And we, it's so hard to grasp that. I mean, we might understand the idea, but it, we're born and bred consumers in this country where we think our needs being met is kind of the point. And we bring that into marriage. But we see that fundamentally undercuts God's design for marriage, which is that God wants to make us whole through our spouse. Make you more like Jesus, more fully human, through the specific, particular flesh and blood, real life, human that you live with. Can we trust him? Can our hearts be soft towards God and receive from him the marriage that he has given you? Now, this does not mean that you have to fake smile and be happy all the time. Lou preached about this last week. There's plenty of space to cry out to God. Why? To be so honest about your hurt and your pain. The people closest to us are the ones that can hurt us the most. And so within marriage, there's just a staggering capacity for people to hurt, them, hurt each other. But we can, he can handle those emotions. Indeed, that's how we grow in trust is by sharing those emotions with God in those hard places. So the last part of the heartburger please forgive the bluntness of it, is don't get divorced. Don't do it. And again, I, I, I'm sorry if that sounds flippant or heartless. And I'm not saying that marriage never gets hard. I'm not saying it can't feel impossible. I'm not, and I'm definitely not saying that there aren't biblical concessions or exceptions. But the, we're talking about the ideal. We're talking about the design. We're talking about human flourishing here. 
is that to, we receive the marriage God's given us and we trust him. Trust that he is the one who joined us together and that he has good for us in it. Now, there might be safety concerns. I, I plead with you not to think of exceptions and extreme examples to, to fight about later or whatever, but we can talk about those. There might be safety concerns. Separations might be very crucial and healthy just to get space, to get some stability, to protect one of the parties or the kids. But ultimately, even in those places, even in the marriage on the rocks, people are separated. Stuff is coming out. That's to create space and boundaries so that God can work. God can do his redeeming work through the marriage that he joined together. And yes, Jesus gives us an exception here with sexual morality. But getting, getting lost in the discussion, when can I get a new one? When can I get a new spouse? Really, it misses the point. There's, there's circumstances, and if you're in that place, let's talk about them. The point of what Jesus is saying here is, can we trust the, the one who invented marriage, who creates them, who joins them, and is able to sustain them? Paul says in Ephesians 5 that men are, are to love our spouses like Christ loves us. Christ loves the church, which was what? To death. Women are to love their spouses and submit to them as if loving Christ, which is what? Dying to ourselves so that he might live through us. Either way, there's this dying to ourselves, putting our, our rights, our needs, our privileges, laying them aside. And if we move towards this glorious gospel view, we're moving towards the blissful, joyful, grace-based intimacy that God designs marriages to be. It's why the gospel must be the center of our marriages, not just a generic ascent that God's real, but the nitty-gritty realness of the gospel where we're quick to forgive and ask for forgiveness and admit weaknesses and hold each other in our weaknesses. In marriage, I, I look at Jesus, creator of the universe, king of kings, and I see him dying for me, loving me as I was his enemy, actively against him. I see him being born as a human baby, Lord of lords, born as a human baby, the most vulnerable possible state a human can be in. He did that for me, serving me on the cross, rising again so that I can experience new life, experience redemption, have hope. When we look at Jesus daily, we begin to live in the reality of the gospel. And that's the only way we can step into all the, all the holiness, all the sanctification that God might have for us. The only way we can love our spouses without bitterness, without fear. Instead, we receive God's call to simply and sometimes impossibly stay married. Knowing that he doesn't call us to anything he hasn't equipped us to do. A word on divorce. Tim Keller describes, he's a pastor, uh, divorce like an amputation. Just like man and wife become one flesh, the Lord is joined together to get divorces to cut off part of you. And just like real bodily amputations, it's the last resort. It's the most drastic, unnatural, painful, destructive thing 
that you can do. But also, just like real-life amputations, sometimes it is necessary to save a life. No one's ever relieved or excited to get their foot cut off. It's a final resort to stay alive. This is the, the kind of the posture that we have of divorce. And for the single people here with us, the heartburger is just as applicable to you. Just as a spouse would be God's gift and call to you for your wholeness, singleness, we have to see singleness as a call from God for you to endure and thrive in. If singleness feels like a curse or a punishment, something wrong with you, then we, then we miss God's invitation to us in that singleness. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it won't be crushingly lonely. But it does mean that if you have it, God has called you to it and has stuff for you in it. The question is, do we trust him? Do you trust God with your life? Now, marriage is a vow. It's an oath. I love and serve you until, until death do we part. When I do weddings and people want to write their own vows, I always get a little bit nervous. Because if you ever watch a wedding on TV, what, what are the vows like? You make me laugh. I love your eyes. It's like, it's not a vow. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a, a bad love song. Because sometimes vows in our culture, are, we see them as a statement of current love. When in fact marriage and the vow of the wedding is meant to be a statement of future love, unconditional love, immovable, steadfast love. Marriage is an oath, and as we see, breaking the oath of marriage is fundamentally at the heart, is breaking up mistrust in God's goodness. Look with me in the, the next passage here. Again, you've heard it said, heard that it was said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the, the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This sounds like so heavy and oppressive. But if we see the same heartburger at work here, where trust, trusting that God is present, that he's with us, he's in control, I think we see what Jesus is getting at. What the Pharisees were doing was saying that it's really only a lie if you call on the name of the Lord. If you swear by God's name, then, you're, then he's there, he saw you do it, and you really have to do it. But if you just say, hey, I'll be there next week, and then you don't show up because you didn't invoke the name of God, you're technically not a liar. Like he, like he didn't see you. Like, he, like it doesn't count. Which sounds crazy. It's kind of like you know, crossing your fingers behind your back or something. This is where religion gets us. Really hokey stuff. And Jesus is saying, God is present everywhere. In heaven, earth is a footstool. Jerusalem is, is the city of the great king. He knows the hairs on your head. You can't change one of, them, one of the colors. It's all God's. He's everywhere. He hears and sees everything. And he's controlling everything. You can't even control your hair with a brush and hair gel. At the heart level, what's going on with lying, with embellishment, with exaggeration, with information obscuring, any sense of a lack of integrity? 
is that we're not trusting that, A, God's present, he sees and knows, and is everywhere, and he cares about our lives, and that, B, that he's in control. What are the reasons that we lie? It's to manage and control things, to get people to like us, to control the situation, make sure people do or think what we want, or to gain power, to get stuff done. Bend the truth, twist things a little bit to make stuff happen. When we lie, we're reaching for this control because we don't trust that God's in control. That he approves of us, whether other people do or not. That he has the power to accomplish his purposes. When Jesus says, let your yes be a yes, or your no being a no, he's simply saying, embrace truth. Because it's how you flourish in a relationship with God. You're not going to flourish in a relationship with God if you are this master liar and you have this image of yourself projected all over social media and to your friends that isn't true. Because that's a shell of who you really are. You're not going to flourish in your relationship with God if you try to be in control all the time and don't experience Him working through you. Speak with integrity. Stick with what you say. Don't embellish, exaggerate. Don't obscure the truth. Speak honestly, even when it hurts, even when it's embarrassing, even when it makes you weaker. Because then that draws us to trust in in the God who is with us, who is in control. Where, Where is integrity tough for you? Is it embellishment? Is it just leaving out information? Is it saying yes and then not following through? When Jesus was on his way to the cross, John in his gospel tells us he was standing before Pilate, the, the Roman politician, and he said very little during all these accusations on his way to the cross. But one thing he did say is that I came to bear witness to the truth. He tells Pilate, I came to bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And the funny thing about John's account of this story is that he doesn't give an answer. I don't know if Jesus didn't give an answer or just John chose not to record it. But instead, he shows us what is truth. Because the next thing that happened is that Barabbas, a violent, rebellious, sinful man, goes free. And Jesus, the innocent Son of God, is whipped. And he goes on to die for us, that he might bring us to God, paying the, the penalty for our rebellion so that now we can be in a relationship with God and actually trust him like children. This is what truth is. And we can trust God and stand with this truth because in Christ we see we already have all the approval, all the control, and all the power that we need. Let me pray. Oh, Father. I praise you for this invitation, how your invitation to life with you just pierces into our hearts and the deepest, most painful, difficult places of being a human. And our desire to find our our sufficiency in, in a spouse and swap them out as we need, and our desire to leave truth in order to get a false sense of power or control or approval 
God, I pray against condemnation. Instead, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would convict us where we don't trust you. That we would repent of that mistrust, not with a burden, but with relief. That we are leaving this fearful mistrust and coming into, uh, coming back home. Coming back home to you as well-loved children. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for the marriages here in this room, the pain that might be in them, the questions and confusion of why they exist. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would come and, and give peace, give receptivity, give soft hearts that trust you in them. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for the single people amongst us, and all the, the false messages of satisfaction out there in our culture and all the ways that we can construe our singleness as a curse. And Father, would again, would you soften hearts and do the supernatural, the miracle of letting uh, singleness be received as a call, as a gift. And Father, guard our tongues. May we be a church that's grounded in our identity as your children and speak simply, plainly, and truthfully pointing us to the gospel and our need for you. In Jesus' name.